Take your Bible, turn with me if you would, to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, the title of the message this morning is Worshiping Through Prayer. Psalm 116, as we continue, we have a few more weeks of these psalms before we head into the book of Second Peter, which will be our next series, but Psalm 116. You know, to be honest, sometimes we don't feel like saying hallelujah. Sometimes when we're going through difficult times, we feel like, you know, hallelujah is something that's reserved for times of unbridled joy, and we are going through a time that's not feeling so joyful. We see the word hallelujah throughout these psalms. If you notice, look at your Bible now in Psalm 116 and verse 19. The very last phrase says, praise the Lord. And I've been mentioning this throughout. But when you see L-O-R-D, all caps, that's the word Yahweh. And praise the Lord, like it is there, is the word hallelujah. In fact, if you have a New King James Bible, you'll see a lot of, a lot of your versions will have a note next to praise the Lord, a little footnote that'll say in the margin, or Hallelujah. This happens in Psalm 115 as well. We just did that last week. Psalm 115, the very last phrase is hallelujah. Psalm 117, the last phrase is hallelujah. We see this throughout. The praise of the Lord, even when we don't feel like it. Even when we feel like hallelujah is a long ways away, we may say ourselves, well, we know that God works all things together for good. Therefore, I can praise God. We know these verses like Romans 8, 28 and 29 that says, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We might see these things and think to ourselves, how can this possibly be true? How can it possibly be that God is working all things together for his good? Because it's been very, very hard. Passage today is Psalm 116 shows us how our difficult trials, our bad circumstances, can teach us to worship through prayer. We're going to see that laid out for us because we have something to give back to God. Something to give back to Him because He is worthy. Father, we come to You today knowing that You are worthy. You are indeed glorious. And even when we face these troubled times, I pray that we would learn to give back to You with worship what You truly deserve. In Jesus' name, Amen. How does God work through times of trouble? How does God work through times of difficulty? Psalm 116, look with me in verse 1. And we'll begin as we see first a heart of love for God who listens. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications, my pleadings. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call upon Him as long as I live. We can develop, we can give back to God a heart of love because He's a God who listens. First, we see, He says, the psalmist says, I will love the Lord because He hears me. It's a really sweet way to start this psalm as He cries out to the Lord a love song. I love the Lord because of what He's doing. He's inclining His ear. He's listening to me. Our heart of love for the Lord comes from my realization that the God of the universe is bending His ear towards me. That's what that word means, to incline your ear. It's like God is stooping down and He's listening to our faint cries. I have been in many hospital rooms 
in my ministry life and have seen many people who can hardly speak on their bed in the hospital. And what often happens is the doctor will lean his ear close to the voice of that person to listen to the faintest words, to understand what they're saying. That's the picture. Our God inclines His ear. He bends His ear. And because of this, it says He listens to us. Now this word listen is fascinating. It's the same word that God gives us earlier in the Bible when it says that we are to hear God and obey Him. When He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6, this is that same word, the word to listen. God is hearing. God is listening. God isn't just passing by. He actually is more than hearing. He's actually hearing a request, and he's intent on meeting that request. And he says, my supplications, my voice, my prayers that are coming from my mouth, my pleading for mercy as he stretches out his ear to me, because God has proved himself to be this kind of God, the God who listens to me, I respond with love. That it stirs my heart and I look to my God and I am filled with love in my heart because he listens to me. I want you to notice this person who loves God proves that he loves God. Notice this last line. He says, therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. As long as I'm here, God, I'll pray to you because I know you're listening. I will pray to you because I know you're hearing me. These moments that we need God the most are the moments when we're in the deepest distress. And secondly, he says, I will call on the Lord in these times of deepest, deepest distress. And the scenario he describes in verses 3 and 4 is a scenario that a lot of people might face, the kind of thing that feels as though death itself is surrounding you and wrapping you up. Look at me in verse 3. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol or hell or the grave laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the Lord. I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Where does he find himself? He finds himself here in a deepest distress. It says the pangs of death are surrounding me. Again, the picture here is that death felt like it, it's, it surrounded me with a rope and it's wrapped this rope around me and it's tightening this rope tighter and tighter so that I am feeling more and more restricted so I cannot go anywhere. I cannot move. I cannot breathe. And the pains of death and hell are surrounding me. They're grabbing hold on me. It's like the grave is reaching out and grabbing onto me and pulling me into it. And all he could find, he says here, is distresses or troubles and sorrow. The word distress or trouble has the idea of those who give birth. I've never given birth. My wife has several times. And there's that scary moment. I was telling just somebody the other day, I was telling them about this. I said, you know, the most terrifying moments in my life were that like those, those few moments right before the baby comes. It's, it's scary. Not to scare any of you first time moms or any, or people thinking about becoming a mom, whatever. I'm telling you, as a dad, I'm sitting there completely helpless. Listening to all this going on. I'm not watching. This, this is a little, little clues. I don't like to watch these things. I just, I pray. <laughs> you know, it's my excuse to close my eyes. I pray and I, and I, I'm there with my spouse, my wife, and, um, and yet she is in distress or trouble as she brings forth this baby. That's the same picture, the same words used here of a woman who's in agony and bringing forth this word sorrow is just the word agony. And what will he do in this moment? What will he do when he finds himself surrounded by death, when he finds himself in trouble and sorrow, when he finds himself being pulled into the grave? 
He says, then I called on the Lord. I called on the name of the Lord. His name is important. His reputation. God, your reputation, your character, I'm calling on you. And you, what happens? He says, you Lord, please deliver my soul. Deliver my whole person. Deliver myself. This isn't necessarily speaking here of salvation of a soul from hell. It's more of the salvation of a person from destruction. Lord, he says, save me, deliver me. And we find ourselves in these deepest distresses. We turn to God for salvation. And thirdly, I am saved by the Lord because of his righteous character. Look at verses 5 through 7. For those who are struggling with physical affliction, many times we doubt God's goodness. We doubt God's character. We ask ourselves, we say, why, Lord, are you allowing me to go through this? You might even blame yourself, thinking you're the reason that God hasn't forgiven you of a sin, or maybe that you're paying for your sins again. But notice what these verses are going to say, that God listens and delivers out of overwhelming distress, and in doing so, he demonstrates his good character. Verse 5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Let's look at the character of God here on display. And when you're going through a difficulty, like I just said, we need to cling to the cling fast to the character and the identity of God. We need to remember who we're worshiping. We will be tempted to believe all kinds of lies when we're under distress. Reject these lies and cling to the truth. First, God is gracious. That means he is forgiving. God is a forgiving, gracious God. He is a God of mercy. He does not hold your failures over your head. He is the one who forgives you. Your pain, if you're saved tonight, I have good news. That your pain and your struggle are not in effect of God exacting revenge on you. God is not holding back in heavens, looking at you saying, I'm going to get them for what they did to me. I'm going to zap them with this or zap them with that. That is not God's character. He is preserving you, in fact, through this. We see this in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If Christ has indeed paid for your sin, there is no more sin to be paid for. And if you are indeed saved, then God being gracious is a forgiving God. Secondly, we see that he's a righteous God. That means he's morally upright. He's someone who is always morally upright. He will not do what is wicked, what is wrong. He will always do what is right. I think another way of thinking of this word is to think that God is fair. He's a fair God. He's not an unjust God. He's not mean. He acts in righteousness, I think of James chapter 1, verse 17, which says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning or shadow due to change. You know, God doesn't change. God is good. He's the good Father who gives good gifts. He's a righteous and loving God, morally upright, and also He is merciful. And what mercy means is that He takes pity on us. That, that He stops... I'm going to use, this is called an anthropomorphism. In other words, I'm going to speak of God as if he were a man, even though he's not. It's almost as if God is going about his day and he sees us struggling and he stops what he's doing and pays attention to us. Now, God doesn't have to stop what he's doing to pay attention to us. You understand what I mean, right? But all of us have been in situations 
where we've had to make, an adjust, make, make a decision. Like, you know, I've been busy cleaning my house or busy working on something. One of my kids is, is, is fussing. And who knows what they're fussing about? It could be legitimate. Probably isn't. You know, they're, they're making, a, making a fuss of something. And I have a choice. As I'm busy doing my things, I could stop what I'm doing and I could look at my child and figure out what's going on with them and deal with them or I could ignore them. And we've all been in situations like this. There have been times when you've been driving on the road and there's been an accident on the side of the road and you look to see how many people are helping and you make an assessment. Should I help or should I not? I don't need me. I'm going to keep going. But sometimes you say, yep, they could use me right now. And you pull over and you address the situation. I know that God doesn't have to stop what he's doing to pay attention to us, okay? Because God is eternal. God is everlasting. God is omnipotent. God is infinite. But... This picture of God being merciful and taking pity on us means that God looks to us, cares for us, that he, in a sense, focuses on ministering to us. In fact, this is from the very beginning, one of the character traits that is spoken to us about our Lord. Even from Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord Yahweh, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. There it is. The first attribute is that he is merciful. He is one who takes pity. And the the attributes of God are not just these abstract character traits. We actually see the character of God in the works of God. If you look at verse 6, we see the works of God. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low. He saved me. First, he preserves the simple. I'm one of the simple people. One of the foolish ones. One of the inexperienced ones. I'm going through this for the first time. And these troubles are jumping out and surprising me. I didn't expect these kinds of things to hit me. Like a child, I'm helpless. And what must a child do when he's helpless? He looks to his parent. He looks to those who are in charge of him. And I look to the Lord to be the one who preserves my life. I'm simple. I need someone to help me. And God does this because of his good character. Notice he says, I was brought low. By someone else. Someone else brought me low. But what has God done? He rescued me. He saved me. He preserves the simple. Secondly, look at the second character trait that God works out. Second of the works of God in verse 7. He gives rest. Isn't it rest a treat? Rest is a gift of God. He says in verse 7, return to your rest, O my soul. He starts speaking to himself. Whenever you see this phrase, oh, my soul, pay attention to that, because there's a there's a theme throughout the scripture of when we are in trouble. What we need most of all is to speak the truth to ourselves. We need to talk to ourselves. Our our world tells us, listen to yourself, listen to yourself, pay attention to what you're feeling. That's what you'll hear. But what the Bible teaches us is when you're feeling something, you need to talk to yourself. And he speaks to himself here and says, go back to sleep, oh my soul. A lot of believers are screaming at the top of their lungs. They just want peace. They've been battered, bruised, and torn apart by the world. And all they want is some rest. Well, God is here in his actions to give us, in his character, in his works. He gives us. He's the one who gives rest. And we can, in our soul, return to rest. There's nothing like going back to sleep. Waking up, being agitated, and going back to sleep. Some of you haven't had a good night's sleep in a long time. God calls us, and there is a true connection here to trusting in God and being able to rest. And then he sends us on our way. Look at the rest of his chapter, uh, or verse 7. He says, the Lord has dealt bountifully. That is, he has 
looked after you. Uh, this, this idea of bounty is related to the ripeness of a tree. It's like a ripe almond. It's actually, funny enough, used also in other contexts. This word is used to indicate the weaning of a child. And that's when it says that it's like when a child is weaned, it's able to go out on its own. It's able to be separate from the mother. It's able to be sent out. And he's saying, I have dealt bount- he has dealt bountifully with me. He has given me enough and sent me on my way. I have come to ripeness and I am out in the world now. What an amazing picture. I have, I have been sleeping, I have been resting, and now can go out. Now there's a break here between verses 7 and 8. He goes from talking to others about God's faithfulness to verse 7 talking about himself. They're talking to the Lord directly. And then he's going to pick up on this theme of great distress from verse 3. And now he's going to develop what it looks like in the inner man to go through this kind of distress. And so the key identifier here is that God has rescued, God has pulled out, God has delivered from distress. So first we saw a heart of love for the God who listens, and now we see the sacrifice of praise for the God who rescues us. Keep reading with me in verse 8. We see the results of our deliverance. He says, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. We see an immediate deliverance first, an immediate impact on me, is that he wiped tears from my eyes. Weeping here. God, God loves to wipe away our tears. We see that in the scripture. Through the book of Revelation, God wipes away all tears. Sorrow is a natural part of life, but God overcomes that sorrow. He brings us joy. And secondly, he delivers our feet from falling. He, he, the picture here is of the road of life and our feet are slipping on the dusty road on the rocks and, and we, we lose our footing. And God is the one who delivers us from that. And it's more than a final deliverance of the soul. God actually delivers us in the here and now. God is doing things right now on display for everyone to see. Also, there's a lasting impact. Verse 9. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He moves from what feels like the land of the dead to now being in the land of the living. He says, I am walking. I am in constant movement in my life where I ought to be in the land of the living. Look at the reliability of this deliverance in verses 10 through 11. He says, I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. So in this, these two verses, he contrasts the reliability of God, the dependability of God with the unindependability, if that's a word, or the, the, the weakness of mankind. There's an inner dialogue here in his heart. First, he says, I believe, therefore I spoke. He cries out from within his deepest hearts. How does he feel? What does he feel? I am greatly afflicted. I am crushed. He says, I can come to no other conclusion than I am being oppressed, yet... Despite all this, he believes when he speaks. He believes in God. The fact that he feels afflicted does not, only, does not mean that he has stopped believing. He believes and he speaks. God's faithfulness cannot be overwhelmed with his feelings. His deliverance from the Lord is reliable. The second verse, he says, I said in my haste, he speaks quickly here. That's it. We've all felt this before. Our emotions and our inner thoughts come out at the worst times when we least expect it. And he feels disillusioned with those around him, his partners, his friends. They're all liars to him compared to God, the God who never will lie, the God who is faithful and merciful and kind. Yet all the people around him are trying to help, but they can't help. They're just all liars. This is what contrast to the God who is reliable in his deliverance. Yet God, God is reliable, yet people are not. 
All men, he says, are liars. People will fail. What's the response of our deliverance? Look at verse 12. We are to render to the Lord. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will take the cup of salvation. I will call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of his people. This idea of rendering to God is very important. In fact, this word render means to return back. It means to give back. It's like he's looking around trying to find a suitable gift, a suitable blessing, but he realizes that everything he has has been given to him by God. Everything in his and everything in his possession isn't really his anyway. So what can he return to God? What can he give back to God and what he decides to give back? What's the answer? Verse 13, I will take an offering, the cup of my salvation. I will call on God in prayer. And then in verse 14, he says, I will pay my vows. Because here's a thing that happens in the middle of distressing times. Sometimes we vow things to God. There are two stories here I want to... Uh, use uh, as an example or as an illustration of this. Number one, Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, before he was converted man, was cowering in a violent thunderstorm. He vowed to God, Lord, if you sustain me through this thunderstorm, I will become a monk. He survived the thunderstorm, and to be faithful, he completed his vow and became a monk in the Catholic Church. It was then that he learned the Greek language and studied the New Testament in the Greek. And by reading the Greek New Testament in the book of Romans, he discovered that the Catholic Church's teaching on justification, that is being righteous, was wrong. They taught you had to earn your faith, earn your righteousness by your good works. And yet Luther discovered in Romans chapter 1 that the just shall live by faith. And the righteousness of God is not something that he holds over us. It is something that he gives to us. This happened because a man was faithful and fulfilled his vows. Also the story of John Newton. You may know the story of John Newton. He was on a ship in 1748. He was in such a great storm that he was convinced that he was going to die. He was delivered after four days of storms. They were so bad. He was clinging to the, uh, the, 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 the riffraff of that ship. He was so amazed by his deliverance that he made vows to God that he would never swear again because he was considered to be one of the most vile and wretched men on that ship. Years later, he came to saving faith in Christ. And then once again, he found himself in, uh, in Africa with malaria. This man was so wicked, he served on a slave ship, transporting slaves from Africa to the United States. And while suffering on a slave ship with malaria, he came under deep conviction and he remembered his vows he had made to God. He threw himself at the mercy of God and he renounced his sinful ways and penned the words to this hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When he said a wretch like me, he meant it. Because he was indeed a wretch. Most of us cannot imagine the kind of wickedness that John Newton was involved with. He said, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. In fact, the music to Amazing Grace, many musicians have theorized, was something that he picked up from the African slaves. Because of the way the sound of the music is, is a very familiar spiritual sound. It sounds very African uh, in its construction. So some people believe that as not an original um, composition, that the music itself came from the people that he was involved in enslaving. 
Yet he found the goodness of God. And he was obedient to his vows and renounced his sin and followed Christ. I wonder, have, what is your response to the deliverance that God has given you? Would you take the cup of your salvation? Would you praise and worship God? Would you fulfill your vows before others? Lastly, verse, uh, section number 3, starting in verse 15, we see that we can give back a life of service for a God who liberates Find out that God who liberates us is not just liberating us from something, He's liberating us to something. First, verse 15 of precious life, we see that God cares about the lives of His holy people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Now, I think this verse has been misunderstood sometimes. I mean, I know I misunderstood it at times. Because the word precious does not mean that God enjoys or God somehow likes the fact that his saints die. In fact, what it's saying is that it is costly when the Lord loses one of his saints here on earth. It is a costly thing. The death of his saints is a costly thing. Precious is a word meaning costly or valuable. It costs him something. You are costly to God. You are valuable to God. God does not think of you merely as a cog in the machine or as a worker bee. You are a precious jewel to Him. You are a precious thing to Him. And He does not treat your life without care. God wants to preserve you. And He's intent on preserving the life of His covenant people, His saints. Referring to those who have a covenant relationship with God. He wants you to have a long life of service with Him. Secondly, we see ourselves in this picture as a freed slave. In verse 16, he says, O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your slave. I am your slave, the son of your female slave. You have loosed my bonds. He says, Lord, you are my master and I am your servant. A servant is someone who does not have their own will, does not have their own property, do not make choices for themselves. They serve completely at the will of their master. And he says this twice. He says, Lord, I am your slave. I am your slave. He repeats this twice to confirm that he is not a freed man who became a slave. He is a slave who was rescued from being a slave and is a slave again. He's not just a slave who is liberated. He is a liberated slave who has now been enslaved again, this time to the Lord, to a better master. The picture is we are all slaves to someone. Notice that last line. You have loosed my bonds. You have taken away the things that held me down and have joined me to yourself. Now I am your slave. He says, I am even the slave, the son of your maidservant. That is, I am a son born into your house as a slave. I have been freed, yet I am a slave to you. And in Romans chapter 6, we see this picture perfectly displayed for us in Romans chapter 6. We are called no longer slaves of sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness. I have it up on the screen. Follow along if you will. It says, you not know that you whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Notice, but God be thanked. Though you were slaves of sin... 
that you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became what? Sorry, I didn't <laughs> fast the thing. Having become free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. God does not free us to be freely running around doing whatever we want to be liberated to ourselves. We are freed from sin to be enslaved to him. Notice he says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. But just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Now, he says, present your members, present your bodies as slaves of righteousness for holiness, because when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regards to righteousness. What fruit did you have in the things of which you were ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. We are the servant of God. We are slaves of God. We have been freed from our sin and united with him. We are freed slaves. That is an amazing picture. We have been liberated from our own selfishness and freed from that bonds of sin and have been united and joined with God. Secondly, we are a worshiping slave. If you go into verse 17, we are as a slave of God, one who is completely his servant, completely at his disposal. And our response is to be one who worships him. Verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. And I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Hallelujah. What may I offer God? What may I offer him? Verse 17 says, I will offer him a sacrifice of my thanksgiving. I will have a grateful heart. And I will pray and call on the name of the Lord. If you go back to verse 1, we see at the beginning of this psalm, it begins with a loving God, with us loving God because he has listened to me and heard my prayers. And the psalm ends here with the psalmist again committing, I'm going to pray to you, God. I will pray to you and I will thank you. How many of us have a thankful heart? Thanking the Lord for the things that he brings us through because secondly, we see not only I can offer God these things, I am paying vows before God and others. Once again, this topic of vows or promises to God comes up. And he says he will do this now and before everyone. I will pay vows to the Lord in the courts of the Lord's house. Look at verse 18. He says, I will pay my vows to the Lord now. He won't wait. He won't delay. He will do it immediately. He will do it in the presence of all the people. Everyone will know that God has been good to me. Everyone who God, everyone who knows God, part of this congregation who will be there worshiping him will worship with this freed slave. And he will do it in the temple itself, in the courts of God's house, in the place of worship. I will recognize my deliverer. I will submit to him as a life of service. And once again, the psalm ends with that familiar phrase, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I began by asking you a simple question. That is, sometimes we don't feel like saying Hallelujah. Sometimes we are going through the kinds of trouble. We are feel unheard. We feel unrescued. We feel bound in chains. But notice what this scripture tells us. God is a God who listens. Therefore, we must love him. God is a God who rescues. 
Therefore, we should give him a sacrifice of our praise. And God is a God who liberates. Therefore, we should submit ourselves in service. And even when we cannot understand what God is doing, we cannot understand what we're enduring for good, how how that all works, we must worship him. How does God work all these things together for good? How does he do that? What could he possibly be using our our times of trouble, tribulation, and distress? Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, where we started the service this morning. I want to finish here. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 28, I read that passage this morning. And I started this message off with 28 and 29. But if you notice what happens immediately thereafter, let's read those verses first. Whom he foreknew, he pre- or we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If we look at verse 31, this is what follows immediately on these verses. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him? Also freely give us all things. Who shall bring a charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is risen and even at the right hand of God who makes intercession from us, for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. He said, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the what? From the love of God. We love Him because He first loved us. And throughout all these things, even our death, we are more than conquerors. And if you are united with Christ, if you are united with Christ, then nothing can separate you from the love of God. And we can worship God and we can say hallelujah despite whatever trials we face. Despite whatever things we're going through, we can look at these verses and we can say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I know that nothing can separate me from your love. And you can cry out to the Lord, Psalm 116.1, I love the Lord because he has heard me, because he cries out to me and because he cares. God cares about you. And when we recognize that God cares about you, would you respond with me in worship, a life of worship? Because he has cared for you, we can worship him anew.